0: Before I begin, I would just like to acknowledge the lands that this podcast was recorded on here at the Institute of Modern Art. I would like to acknowledge the Yuggera and Turrbal people, um, their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledges that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The following is a recording of a panel discussion on monumentalisation to tie in with Ioane Scarce's show here at the Institute of Modern Art, titled Missile Park. The panel discussion is facilitated by Liz Noel, the director of the Institute of Modern Art and co-curator of Missile Park. Guests are Tony Albert, Judy Watson and Kevin O'Brien.
1: Thank you, everyone. I'd like also to acknowledge um, we're on Aboriginal land and extend my warm welcome to all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community here with us today. Um, We're just using microphones because we are Zooming. uh, No, oh, my gosh, I've got my technology confused. We're streaming um, in on Facebook, I think, and um, our social media platforms. So um, we need the sound to be picked up. Um so I'm a little bit of a last minute um, uh, inclusion, um so we thought we might keep more today as a little bit of a an open discussion and a bit of a round table rather than me kind of interviewing everyone. but we're here today to talk about first Nations representation in the public realm and first Nations public art and a little bit of background um, to context as to the um, the reason for this, pub- this uh, public program and this discussion is because behind us is, um, as Talara said, the new commission, Missile Park, um, by Yuani Scarce and the title for the current exhibition, On at the IMA. Um, and this exhibition and this particular commission was... Um, ..our work was co-commissioned with the Australian Centre of Contemporary Art, um, and curated by myself, Lisa Welp and Max Delaney, and the um, this this work and um, is really Ywani. Uh, has been working at glass for a very long time, and her work started at quite an intimate, small scale. But over the years, have really um, grown in in ambition and scale, and as has her interest in architecture, and this. This work, um, she she recently did a a rather large um, architectural commission for the NGV in Melbourne called In Absence, which was a nine-metre-tall kind of cylindrical um, memorial in a way. Um, And so this work here um, behind me is the first time that Ioannis um, kind of brought architecture into the gallery in a way. These are literally um, dwellings or structures that are reflective of... um, kind of uh, uh, military structures that were um, erected in her her birth town of Woomera. Um, And so um, we're really interested, um, as an extension of the work in this exhibition, in talking about First Nations, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, representation, as I said, in the public space around architecture, public art and memorial. Um, so I'm joined by three incredible um, colleagues and um, experts on this subject. Um, to my right, um, Al- uh, Tony Albert, I was about to say Albert. <laughs> Tony Albert, um, uh, one of Australia's leading contemporary artists and recently moved back to Brisbane. I wasn't meant to tell everyone that, but I did. Um, so we're very lucky to, uh, to have Tony uh, with us here today. Um, having spent the past decade in in Sydney and having exhibited um, both nationally and internationally um, with his works in in significant collections, public and private. Um, and I'll get him to speak a little bit more about his public art, um, historic um, work um, in Hyde Park in a moment. To my left, we're joined by Judy Watson, also one of our very great, greatest artists, um, we've had the privilege of working with at the IMA over a number of years and Judy is an incredibly accomplished artist in the in the gallery space has represented Australia in in um, international um, contexts all over the world against state and institutional collections but also in terms of public art um, has an, made an incredible contribution I think to um, to uh, to art and culture in the public space. Oh, my microphone just made a... Did it go louder? Oh, sorry, that just... um. And also we're joined by um, Kevin O'Brien, an architect, an incredible architect, and adjunct professor professor at the Sydney School of Architecture at the University of Sydney. And Kevin has... um, also had a long relationship with the IMA. I believe um, you were on the board at one point, uh, being a contributor to many um, public uh, many public programs, and uh, contributed to our recent um, catalogue uh, on fire, climate, climate and crisis, um, and has a lot of really interesting things I, th- I think to say about um, First Nations um, uh, or approach and knowledge. Um, in application of kind of architecture and public um, public buildings and uh, art. So please um, join me in welcoming our three speakers. I didn't do a I didn't do a formal bio um, read because it always feels so um, reading off a piece of paper um, a bit formal. So. Um, I guess I, how I thought I'd open and to introduce all of the speakers maybe is um, you're welcome to speak about your practice in your own words, but also specifically to perhaps pick one project in the public wor- realm that you've worked on um, and maybe talk to us about how you what, what that project was and um, how you approached... Um, yeah, how you approached um, the work and the significance of that work for you. Um, I might start with you Tony and hand you the mic. Okay. Yeah? Well, or, a question. Oh, well, yeah so perhaps uh, maybe one of, one of you would like to start, any of you speaking about a, perhaps a public art project you've worked on, just to give a bit of context to the group um, about some of your um, previous projects that you've done in the public public realm, I was thinking about you'd imagine, it, imagine me for you, and perhaps you could start speaking about that, or if either of you wanted to start. <laughs> Judy?
2: Uh, well, I could speak you know, about... Most. Yeah, yeah, Judy has done a lot. Toro? <laughs> yeah, Toro, yeah, talk yeah. about Toro, exactly. Because uh, the digital platform for that just opened exactly. yesterday. Perfect, so exactly. Uh, yes. yeah. Yeah, congratulations. So. <laughs>
1: No, it is.
2: It's very important. Uh, well, I have to say that wasn't my work, the digital platform. <laughs> like everything I do, it's um, I might have an idea, but it's everybody else behind it, you know, doing the welding, doing the bronze casting and, in this case, doing the digital platform, having the idea behind it, the support of the Indigenous Art Advisory Group. You know, there's so many people that push to get these um, things up. So we're just lucky as artists that apart from having the idea and a visualisation of it, we've got other people who will run with it and do uh, do the work with us.
1: And perhaps you could tell us about that work. I'm sure everyone here will know it. It's outside in the forecourt of GOMA and how that project came about and what your kind of methodology or thinking, sorry, this is quite loud, um, was behind that work. Sure.
2: Uh, it was an invitation to... Indigenous Advisory Committee at the time, I think. Are you still there? No. No. It the last one. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, like all of those things, as artists, you throw your hat in the ring or you sort of, you know, put your ideas out there. And I was lucky enough and privileged uh, to get the opportunity to make the work. And it was for the 10-year anniversary of GOMA. And I wanted to make something which was not going to be like a big, heavy structure um, and to be able to reveal and be like a, a veil to see the country around it and through it. So the actual place, and we were given the place and told how big it could be, the actual sort of space to make the work in. And so I had an idea for doing a whole lot of nets and it ended up being one net. And I also had an idea of doing projections onto the walls outside of Gomer of those nets in the shadows. But of course, there was another artist, you know, sort of in the wings waiting to do that, uh, the light work. And I think one of the things if you're working on a public artwork or a building or whatever is you might have an idea, but you have it's whittled away by... Uh, things like they had to be able to wheel really large sculptures like the Anish Kapoor from um, Storeroom or something past that space. So there's all these things you can't even imagine as a visitor going there Mm. which you have to sort of wear as an artist. And so I wanted to make something very light and ethereal and there's a whole, I won't go on about it because you can see online the actual making of the work and um, why, when I had the commission that day after the um, the morning tea, I ran into Lisa, Carmichael, Lisa Jane Carmichael and was telling her about the project and she said she'd been looking at knots at that stage and how with nets you can have knots. Some nets uh, have to slip because they've got to be able to cope with really rough water in big waves and then there's other knots where the... Um, nets where the knots can stay um, stationary because it's calm water so I thought oh well, do you want to come on and work with me on the project and then we worked with Imelda um, from the Queensland Museum looking at toro nets which are only called toro in this area of southeast Queensland in other places like in my country one Aboriginal country we saw some from Doomagie uh, They would have a different name And I worked with the community in Manigrida and there were butterfly nets there, made in a different way, but a similar thing. And the digital platform, which everybody can see now, uh, takes us into a space, an imagined space, uh, to see what those concealed histories are that uh, lie beneath the ground we are standing on or walking over or sitting on now. And so that's what I'm really interested in. So you can have a look at that and that's you can send it out to people and people can see it from all over the world. And it's a way of all of us, especially during COVID times, being able to be transported to a place and also respect and recognise Indigenous owners, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander owners of country. Yeah, and and a huge congratulations. That was launched on Thursday
1: morning, I believe, Um, And I know that the um, augmented reality, I keep wanting to say AI, that's been in development for some years now. Couple of years, wasn't it? It's really incredible. Um, Kevin, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you um, came into architecture or what um, interests you about it. And in particular, I guess, just help us understand your practice a little more.
0: Sorry. Um, I might skip over that. Just tell you what I've been working on. Get to the point. I think sure. um, the I think the most current project is uh, it's something called Black Box, which has been floating around for a couple of years um, between mostly in Sydney, and it was at the Sydney Festival and was at Barangaroo for some of the Dreaming festivals there, and then it was effectively quarantined for a year and a half in Melbourne, outside the um, Botanic, well, inside the Botanic Gardens. And it's on its way here to Brisbane next year um, for a particular festival that we can't say the name of just yet. But it's a really nice project because um, it's it's essentially a white box, if you can call it a black box, and it's a square and plan, it's probably about the same height as these, but maybe three times as as wide. And inside's an asymmetrical kind of egg shape, and inside that space, um, is where stories and soundscapes um, are presented and you you sort of sit around the perimeter of this thing and you have the ground of that country that you're in underfoot. So Daniel Browning, who who works for Radio um, National on the Away program, so he coordinates and composes all the works with local communities. And Karen Norris, who was the lighting designer for Bangara through the 90s, does all the light works inside and outside. So the white box is actually made out of polycarbonate, recyclable polycarbonate, and it, it comes alive at night. So you just have these this sort of ephemeral quality with um, the light hitting it and has this sort of water, watery sort of quality as well. So when you go into this thing, what it's trying to do is bring people into a kind of trance-like state so that you can just feel and listen to the sound and the light um and how that's kind of composed with the sound is it's quite amazing so that'll be here soon but i think what it's really talking to which i find currently important for me is the distinction between being an architect and an artist Mm. and um i firmly believe you can't be both like you're either one or the other because as a practicing architect we have to work within limits and it starts with legislation and all those boring things and the artists I'm into sort of started the limits and smashed through them and, and set the new ones and go beyond it. So um, it's a slightly comical discussion with my fellow architects who sort of claim to be artists, but I have a I have such a massive um, respect for genuine artists who have put everything into their art and. Um, I have less respect for architects who claim to sort of take some of that away from them. So I think the role of the architects is to get out of the way of the artists.
2: Mm. That's
0: my thing at the moment. Good. <laughs>
2: did you?
1: you want to I was going to um, pass it over to Tony. Perhaps you could speak about a um, significant public art project you did in Sydney's Hyde Park um, five, six years ago now. Perhaps you'd like to start talking about that.
0: Hello. <laughs> um,
3: thank you, everyone. Um, so I think it was two thousand and fifteen, um, off the top of my head. But yeah, I was I was fortunate to do uh, a memorial to honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander service men and women um, in Sydney's Hyde Park. That was similar through a uh, a call out kind of um, response where four artists were picked to further. Um, which is which is quite a common kind of working methodology within um, these kind of works Um, and uh, my work was chosen so uh i you know i i strongly believe in the idea of more uh public art um by um aboriginal people um i still think they're you know living in a landscape which is quite barren of indigenous indicators uh, and um, yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting one, I think within public art and being Aboriginal people as well, you're very mindful of, of working on country um, and the implications on that and I was very grateful to have um, so much support. Um, from the Sydney community at the time, um, and it was a really big project. In the fact, actually, the biggest uh, the city had ever worked on in terms of stakeholders, because you had like the the um, the army, the city of Sydney, the Aboriginal community. There was all all these people involved, which does make it very difficult. As both um, Judy and Kevin have alluded to, there's there's many people, and you when dealing with public art and. You know, feedback might come from someone who's never met you or seen the project, but I'd rather it orange than green or something because that's what they think. So there's a lot of a lot of issues involved in that. But um, I was compelled or drawn to it. I was working um, a lot with my own family history at the time, and a family that had over 80 years combined military service um, amongst. Uh, my immediate family in the Army, Air Force and Navy. And um, my grandfather was also a prisoner of war in Germany and had fought in World War II. So there was this really interesting connection um, to that story. And when thinking about that, uh, the, the implications of something like like this and the memorialization in general of, of um, people who have fought for this country, I guess... Um, uh, you could look at, and um, it's not as simple as just a list of names, or, or you know, actually, you couldn't unless enlist. enlist. Um, as a soldier, as an Aboriginal person, in those in those times, so um, our people would um, either say they were. It was it was a uh, a double-edged sword in a way. You would not identify as Aboriginal, but the need for for uh, people to enlist meant that the army was kind of turning a blind eye to people who were clearly um, Aboriginal um, as well. But you 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 couldn't do that. And then through my um, research, um, it was very hard Um, even with uh, documentation you would have colonel so-and-so or sergeant so-and-so and and, an unidentified black man like in all no one was ever no no people of color were ever uh, details were ever taken in any kind of documentation so we're looking at something a lot a lot broader in the terms of of um, maybe the idea of what a memorial could be and I wanted to take uh, a story that was personal, I guess you could say, but emblematic of very heroic stories which represented um, what um, men and women had gone through within war. And another, and in the idea of memorialization as well, it was interesting that, um, you know, one of the things I was up against was. Um, you know, we still hadn't acknowledged first wars in this country as well, and a lot of people are like, "Well, why are you doing this?" And you know, we haven't even done that. And it's like we actually have to take our opportunities when they come. Like, I, you know, this this was the moment that that was going to happen, and that it should happen. So um, uh, that's you know another reason I kind of decided to do that. But the the whole. Uh, engagement and involvement within um, public art and memorialisation and working with community is a very difficult one, but also very, very rewarding. Mm.
1: You you mentioned the um, feeling compelled to make that work, and I guess um, all of you have been compelled to make work in the public space. Um, I'm interested in, to, uh, as speaking from the perspective of First Nations architect or artist, um, you know, what you think, what you hope the impact or the legacy of affirming these kind of public sites um, will be?
2: Um, I was at the British Museum along with um, a few other artists and performers, I can't remember when it was, maybe 2015 or something like that, and I remember hearing... Uh, a curator black curator uh, talking about how in uganda they did like a memorial uh recognition of trauma and wars that had occurred over there and they created a dancing ground and the dancing ground was uh like a path and then with an angle on it that was, I think it was made out of, you know, concrete like a path. And they would come, and the women especially would come and dance on it. And they would invite people who had been participated in the war as perpetrators, as well as others, to dance uh, that trauma into the ground. And they did that every year. And that led me into wanting to make something uh, as part of our own memorial in terms of frontier wars. And that's when I sort of went on the trajectory or journey of um looking at the names of places and uh made the the video work which is actually showing at the moment at griffith art university art museum but was first shown here uh in the green room the green screen and then from there uh worked with a whole lot of people on a map showing you know sort of what I call the discredits the rolling discredits of places of mass massacres occurred in Australia so that was one thing that I sort of felt compelled to do thinking about after hearing somebody else speak about what they do in their country and what we should be doing in ours
0: Um, I th- what, ultimately what I think uh, the need is for these kinds of projects um, and events and settings is that they open our eyes to what we belong to and I think that's that's the ultimate goal so mm-hmm. as you know um, I guess terra ter- analysis is about what you own um, and in terms of how it's boiled right down to you know where you put your toilet in a house and what kind of taps you have and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you don't belong to it, you just own it. And um, the the reminder of um, uh, these events in terms of uh, the long history but also revealing uh, through my, um, I guess, format as an architect, the the settings or the spaces or the ephemeral moments that actually connect you to a place and make you um, love it as opposed to just owning it means that you... It adjusts your behaviour. You start to take care of it, and it becomes something that you're part of. You sort of get into this idea of oneness with it. That's that's what I think the architecture is about, and in that, that's where I think art has a role to play. So I'm not I'm not when I say I'm a um, massive respect of artists. It's not that I make buildings as little tubs that you need to go and stick the art in. I think that's actually the wrong way to do it. So I think they all come together to do something about revealing this part of our um, culture.
1: Mm, I think that's a really um, powerful uh, reflection and and something I've um, read, uh, um, having read read things you've written and heard you speak before that you speak about, and that idea of ownership versus kind of uh, belonging, I think, is... A very important, um, yeah, a very important reminder and reflection, and and a very different way of having a relationship to where you where you are, you know. Um, Tony, from your perspective, having created the, um, you know, a really, I think, historically important um, memorial in that context, you know, a memorial to servicemen and women. Um, and I think that maybe the first one in Australia perhaps, or one of the first ones very early on, um, what for you is, you know, are you hoping is the kind of legacy and the impact of those kinds of projects or that particular project?
3: Sure. Uh, for me, that is um, historical truth and accuracy in the way in which we look at the past um, uh, Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander service. Men and women have fought in every war since since the first war, War. so the very first war, the Boer War in the early 1900s uh, had um, Aboriginal uh, men and women. Um, We had what happened In our country at that time was the White Australia policy came into place while these people were gone. And consequently, uh, they were not allowed back into this country. So through my research, there's about 60 people buried, um, 60 Aboriginal men buried uh, overseas that ended up having lives outside of Australia. Um, So literally went and fought for this country and weren't allowed back in. Um, then in the, you know, World War I and World War II, we had servicemen and women. Um, and your, your fee, basically, for, for those efforts was land um, on return. And not only did Aboriginal men and women not get that, they were still getting their land taken off them. They were still getting their kids taken off them. Well, they were even considered proper parents, let alone um, people who had just gone and, and served and fought for this country. So when I look at the way in which that Anzac spirit is united or ignited within the Australian vernacular. There is something missing from that. There is something um, uh, incredibly problematic within the way um, that is celebrated. And I don't want to take away anything from from anyone who who served or fought for this country, but there is a disparity um, between those histories and as Aboriginal people we are not a legacy of our own doing um, we are in the situation and position we are in as people because of the um, atrocities that were that were um, uh, uh, performed on us as people and I thought that that the that example of Anzac and that spirit and that way of a Australians identifying with that was at least an entry point into understanding about memorialization and legacy and and how you treat that and um, you know it, it, I didn't want to create a, a, a beautiful memorial it's it's not it's, it''s it's harsh in its reality and its statement um, but that you know i didn't I didn't want to uh, A dolphin water fountain or something you know i wanted something that challenged um uh those perspectives um and and I, i i acknowledge and thank the city of sydney you know especially for for picking me to do it i was um and to talk in the manner in which i do following it it's 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 not something that is is easily done or reflected upon um, in such a way, but um, I I look at, um, you know, the work and other work, you know, by Judy and Kevin and and other artists, that they're they're important indicators and landmarks for um, historical truth and and it's important that we get to walk past, we get to hear those stories. we get to see um, women memorialized through through things. How great is that that you know um, young kids, especially girls, but everyone can can see something other than dead white men who actually were a part of the the product um, of some of the the most um, harshest kind of human rights violations is what who who we see is memorialised in Australia and around the world, and that needs to
1: change. Absolutely, um, and and you spoke about truth telling, and I think Judy, you are you know one of Australia's most significant contemporary artists, but your contribution to public art as well has been really immense, and you have. Uh, how, I'm, I'm not even sure how many public artworks you, I mean, <laughs> yeah, like dozens. Yeah, yeah. And made such uh, such moving and um, important works in public in the public realm, which you've been doing for some time. I'm curious, maybe was that the same thing that motivated you um,
2: to kind of move into public art? I don't really know. Uh, 1994 was the first time I made any public art and that was just being, I think, people who didn't really know much about me or much about anything just invited me to make work for the Kizula Powerhouse in Western Sydney. And that's when I had a couple of assistant artists and, you know, like Brooke Andrew and um, Gordon Hookey So we just made it up as we went along. I knew what I wanted to do there, but I really didn't know how to do it. And so once again, it was just working with everybody, including the concreters and the, you know, the electricians and the, the architects who are fabulous and, and the builders and everybody else. And I think it's just having like a, a vision, and then letting somebody else sort out, well, how are we going to make this and mm. pushing it with them. And often public art is a nightmare. Mm. And so if anybody else ever gets an opportunity that I've missed out on I'm quite thankful and happy mm. that they've got it <laughs> because it's a, it's a long journey to be on and I mean for somebody like Tony you bring the community with you and everybody who is involved in the uh project and other uh, things that you've been involved in they will always remember that experience and you know, count themselves lucky that they spent time with you and on the project, and then that goes into their bloodline and goes into their memories and their children's memories. So I think that's what artists can do. And um, I think for, like Toro or any of the other ones that I've worked on, it's all the people who've worked with me who take ownership of the making of the work and feel really proud about it. And so none of us walk away thinking, oh, well, you know, it wasn't enough. Hopefully it was enough and it's something which rises from the ground and lifts our spirits.
1: Do you want to add anything, Kevin? I agree, I agree. Yeah, I was um, actually, that kind of leads on to my next question around community consultation and perhaps ethical um, considerations around representation often the work you're making in the public realm might be in a community where you didn't grow up necessarily or that you're, you know, it's a huge responsibility to make very grand statements or kind of um, be, uh, yeah, memorialised, you know, a lot of these buildings or artworks often last hundreds of years. I'm interested to hear about perhaps your processes for community consultation or, or even beyond that, when you, do you think about you know, your role and how, how you represent your community and the Aboriginal community, Torres Strait Islander community more broadly in these kind of projects, in these contexts. It's a big responsibility.
0: All right, I'll, I'll tell you why we do it. Um, as an architect here, so I'm with a big practice called BBN, so there's 300 in our practice. So in our projects in Queensland, if I'm doing them and there's in any way uh, a connection to be made with community, I'll make it, but it's not actually a mandated thing. It's a nice thing to have, uh, according to Queensland Government policy, and that, that's as far as they push it. The work I do in New South Wales, however, they have a policy that was brought in by the Government Architects Office under the Department of Planning called Connecting to Country, and it has two levers, and one lever is about mandatory um, consultation and participation with Aboriginal communities where the, the project's located. And the other is um, demonstration through the architecture, um, how that work has been interpreted and um, how directly you're connecting to country. So it's two very different approaches. And most of my work, admittedly, now is in New South Wales because the, the supports there um, you know, the, the people are sort of walking the talk, the government's leading it, um, and when we work on these big public sort of sector projects like hospitals and all that sort of thing, um, you you can work with government clients or agencies that actually have the responsibility of maintaining those relationships with communities. So it's easier for us to come in as architects and work with that or those members of that community. But there's a very clear diagram in the community that... Um, um, I understand, and I've formulated it as a diagram. And it's, um, if you imagine, like a um, you know, like a target for archery. So at the centre and the most important is is elders of that traditional owner group. And as you radiate out, it's just a matter of distance. So it's the local community, then it's the regional community around it, then it's interstate community, then it's international community. So. More often than not, I'm working on projects that are definitely not my country and I know very much that I'm in a pecking order of when I put the community hat on. I'm part of this bigger community, but I'm not part of that specific one just here. But I still have a role to play as an architect. So I'm very aware of where I sit in that pecking order and when I can speak and when I can't speak. But one of the biggest things that absolutely shits me is non-Aboriginal architects Hoovering up Aboriginal culture, reinterpreting it, and then re presenting it back for consumption. And that, that, that's my current fart, which is heaps of fun.
1: <coughs> is that happening right
3: now? Of course it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot. A lot. There's only ten of us who are sort of just under ten of us with Aboriginal um, Torres Strait Islander heritage in the country, so as architects.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I was just thinking. Uh, Yeah, I think the most successful projects are the ones where you've got somebody doing the groundwork for you because you have to start from the ground up. And so if you've got somebody who is like that conduit uh, between the Aboriginal community and yourself as the the artist, architect, whoever, who can actually sort of like um, feed through and bring the ideas but also bring the community with them, um, like Hetty, you know, and that, that community. And Hetty's been working on a project with me for Bara, which is going to be this work um, supposed to be opening at their botanical gardens from ages ago, but, you know, not yet. But once again, having somebody like Hetty Perkins or somebody else who's who's doing all that the ethical uh groundwork working with community and getting everybody on side and then community has some sort of um stake in it and they're 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 doing the work as well and so it's all feeding out um that's when it's fantastic when you don't have that support it can be really really difficult it's like you're stuck there and you don't have anybody nobody's got your back so you you need that and to
3: take on that point, you're working within a system and a framework which doesn't acknowledge or understand the, the, what you have to do to, to do something like that. So as Aboriginal people, what we the, the process of working on land that either is or isn't ours is, is huge and a public art by a non-Aboriginal person could just be 100 metres down the road, it will go down a very different path. To what our ours are, so I, I find that um, a, a difficult conversation um, to have because that includes um, compensating or recompense for a lot of people's time, efforts, and stories, and and being involved, which isn't included often in that bigger framework of of a budget. Um, but I was really, you know, Sydney, um, you know, for me was such. You know, a cosmopolitan place, and um, Aboriginal people from everywhere. And um, for me, it was a platform to the rest, the rest of the world. Um, but there was an Aboriginal men's group that w- would fought very, very long and hard for this to happen. And they're like, "Oh, who's this? You know, young lad coming in and doing this?" Um, um, and they put me through um, a lot of hell, but rightly so. Um, you know, so I, I had to go and and tell them why it should be me to be doing it. I remember it was a very difficult, very hard thing to do, even though I, I knew um, a lot of people associated with it, actually had family attached to the group as well. But, um, you know, I had to understand, um, unless the community wanted or want you to do it, well, there's no point in, in being involved. It, that's just silly. Um, but I remember I went, you know, so I, I had to go and, and, and meet them and say that, plead my case of why I felt I was the right person to do this. And then as an artist, you will or quite often, or, or you have to work with communities. Um, and it's really a case of them giving you the opportunity to do it. And more and more so, I think, uh, communities understand the, the, the relevance or the power that an artist has to, to transform something into that that object or that space or that or to to, to empower or, or to give permission is a very hard thing to do but i think um a lot of um communities understand the role of an artist and how they can do that or that you can work with artists from that community to to help in a lot of ways but um yeah i went to this meeting and no one even sat next to me and i was like oh god Um, And you could see everyone just like... Um, And, you know, when I got up and just said who I was and where I was from and my family story and why I felt I was the right person to do this and why I felt compelled to put in um, uh, a... um, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And then after everyone came and hugged me and was so happy, and I was like, oh, I've just had two months of hell trying to please you guys. But, you know, they just... um they did the right thing that's what well, that should have happened I should have never been able to go in there and just do what I want they tested me and um and they made my life really really difficult but it was for the better then we went on this journey kind of together and I did fundraisers um to to help support um the group again all separate from the initial um commissioning process because you just end up doing this together and realizing yeah it's it's a lot more I think collaborative than a lot of other public art um or um opportunities that are, are done through um different avenues but um, um yeah the, the, the con, it, it's it's the hardest but my most favorite part of doing it as well and I do a lot of not just uh, like in terms of public art but collaborations with different communities not, and it's through invitation more so than anything else but to have the opportunity to walk in someone else's shoes or to have an experience in a community that isn't yours is, is like the, it's just the greatest, um, the greatest thing of all for me is to, to go and, um, you know, be, be welcomed into another community and just see a different way of life. On this different to yours even if it's an aboriginal aboriginal collaboration we're still also different as people
1: Hmm. um i don't really know where i'm going with this and we'll open up to questions soon but i'm thinking about the impact all of your work has had in the public realm and um how what you're doing might be influencing public discourse around land ownership and um I guess place naming um, and things like that because it, it, it's something that's growing, we're seeing a lot more recognition in the public space um, around, you know, country, naming country and um, we are seeing, I guess, more, more um, acknowledgement or recognition um, which I think is through a lot of... A long time um, through ab- advocacy, through public art, through through a lot, you know, through many many factors that are contributing to this. But I, I'm just kind of interested. Um, we talked about history and truth telling, and I'm I'm just thinking about the future and what what we what you all might hope. I asked before about the legacy, but what you hope, what you would like to see in the future, um, and the impact that you would really like these works to have
2: moving forward. It's got some work in it too, which is in the rainforest of Maroochee Botanical Gardens. So I was thinking these memorials don't have to always be something which is in the built environment. It can be very transitory, ephemeral experience. However, within this, uh, working with Arnie Helena Gulash and looking at the... My work was called... uh, Well, our work was called Between a K and a G, between, like, the whole idea of cubby, cubby, gubby, gubby. And there's always this slippage between how different languages and words and things like that are pronounced and often as to who's got the authority or who's got the correct spelling or this or that. But that was where... uh, Helena uh, gifted these words and spoke them they were then captured by Leah Barclay uh, as spectrograms and then those have been cut out and then placed around water tanks at the Maruchi Botanical Gardens which have then been sort of um, painted in with earth from a site near there and also with the language group like Dala for lungfish, etc so I think as well as this, uh works with climate change uh, you know there's Charts to do with climate change and graphs, etc. So, my hope is that the children that come through with the parents and all the visitors will actually see some of those things start uh, speaking the language and naming them, and then, even though it's ephemeral, that will then go into the future. So, I think it it can be something which is going to be there all the time, or it can be something that will stay in your memory, and you'll remember a really great day you had, sort of wandering through these trails and looking at something, and maybe having that memory to take with you. Um,
0: that's a good question. I think I think um, I think language is sort of the thing, right? So uh, the more we can uncover, particularly when you get into the more um, Conflicted parts of Australia, which is inevitably the cities and the and whatnot. But, um, trying to recover or find or research and, and get those um, those words that actually uh, held the concepts and told you something about that place is, uh, I think, super important. So what, what well, I've always done it. In my work, um, and our practice, does it on a much broader scale now. Is that every time a project starts, we open a file on country. And we do all this research to understand the geology, the hydrology, the flora, the fauna. And that's just an objective study because once we understand that, we can understand what the site belongs to in terms of the country it's in. And then we can understand better and have empathy with the Aboriginal history and Aboriginal occupation as it is right now. And in that, my argument is that all of that, um, is better deciphered when you have access to the language because the language will tell you about that place. And I'm looking for the prompts that are going to drive mm. that architecture. And um, rather than picking up a book on architecture from Scandinavia or Japan or somewhere else that's trendy at the moment, I'm, I'm more interested in this place. Um, and for example, that would lead me to understand why this aggregate here, which is a, a mix of river rock from up the Brisbane River, is more connected to country than a set of tiles that's come in from Italy. So I'd use that instead. Sorry.
1: Um.
3: I guess for me, it's just change, um, and accepting and acknowledging that change. And like a good example of that is here and now is people wishing life to go back to normal. You know, normal is what got us into this place. I don't ever want to go back to what life was. Um, pre-COVID it wasn't working and what people know and understand is that there were people living here for hundreds of thousands of years sustaining and managing country and in, you know, we successfully managed to, to ruin that in the past 200 years through bad practices so we have to you know, we, people I think are realizing and understanding the way forward is to actually look back at the past if we want to actually move forward in meaningful ways of understanding Uh, country, you know.
1: Thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, We're running out of time, so I might um, open up to any questions. If anyone's got any questions to ask, you have three amazingly knowledgeable and creative people at your... ..at your... um,
2: is this thing you just as you're an artist? That's when you think you're an artist, one thing
1: that you don't think about is like a diplomatic
2: person. You know, somebody, somebody who's seen an
1: artist as very polished and very, perhaps, isolated and uh, um, entrenched in
2: their work. And yet you people, in order to succeed, mm-hmm. have had to be so hip on that mm-hmm. and so thoughtful. The, the one people, the other people, the people got like me, have got power idea, not a lot of power. You've got to work all these different sorts of people. Do you sometimes just feel burdened? might be able to share the load, but you seem to have to share very heavy. And diplomatically. it's like being, you know, a religious person has a smile behind it. You know, you don't have to say, but it's a smile. Yeah, I've just got one thing on that, is that a lot of people seem to think that being an Aboriginal artist is the easiest thing in the world, and I think it's the hardest thing, because we do have to deal and work through so many scenarios and it's not it's not like you can just go and take something and run with it you've got to consult and you've got to um you're you're going to get a lot of blacklash. I used to call it but I don't call it that anymore (laughs) uh and yeah it's it it's it's tough sometimes but if it goes well it's great Mm.
0: Maybe oh, that's a great thing to say. Um, I'm a professional architect, so I can only say certain things in front of certain clients. But uh, uh, I used to work for a practice called Donovan Hill, and the guys there, Brian Donovan and, and Timothy Hill, used to remind me that because they saw certain things happen to me in certain places, and they would say, look, that okay, that's one thing, but you've just got to remind yourself in all of this, it's the project that matters in the end. And it's, it's good because sometimes I'm in some pretty big, Arrangements where you'd like to say what's in your mind, and you just know you better not. Um, and there's other ways to deal with it. So, in the lack, you know, with the lack of other architects of, of heritage around me, I, you know, tend to hang out with these guys and other people. And I think um, comedy is the best way through it all. Sort of laugh or cry. I think is the thing. There's some, we have some great laughs. Which is good.
3: Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, like optimism in the face of adversity, and in talking about comedy, like the amount of people that. Um, uh, finally introduce themselves to me or something. Can they are always like we're really scared to meet you because we, we thought you might punch us or something? And they like you're such a nice person. So <laughs> I think the work and who you are, I think uh, um, yeah, it all it's all intertwined. But that's something I always laugh at. Yeah.
1: Is there any other questions from anyone?
2: I've got one story. So uh, <laughs> uh, during the Mid- Brisbane Magistrates Court, um, I, this was back in 2003, I think I'd just come from, back from Darwin, was working there, and somebody was saying, uh, getting very upset because I'd allowed a fat camera crew to come in and film the Magistrates Court, and I think it was from Arts, Queensland, or somebody who rang me saying, who gave permission for them to come in? And I said, well... It's Friday night. I'm cooking dinner for the kids. Blame me. I'm the artist. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. My
3: my only response to that is every single time I've done a public art, I vow never to do one again.
1: (laughs) He does. I can vouch for that. (laughs) It's true. As um, someone that's worked on a lot of public artworks, a lot of public art projects, um, I am yeah in awe of the three of you Uh, uh, stakeholder management and situations generally. Um, it's, yeah, it mustn't be easy. Um, is there any other questions before we wrap up? We might take one more. Nope. All right, well, um, if you would all please uh, join me in thanking Kevin O'Brien, Judy Watson and Tony Allen.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you.